1 Kings chapter 18. For those of you who track these things and are interested in them, this evening marks the beginning in the, in the country of Israel and among the people of Israel, it marks the beginning of Shavuot, which is also known of as the Feast of Weeks. Now what's interesting about the Feast of Weeks is what the Jewish people have done, and this happened about the time of the writing of the Septuagint, about 200 years before Christ, it began to be connected with the giving of Torah on Mount Sinai. So Jewish people today, when they celebrate Shavuot, they celebrate the giving of the law. It's, it's a great celebration of Torah. And you can actually go online. I was, I was there this morning early looking at some things and, and thought it was interesting. There are all kinds of special prayers. There's a read-through Torah overnight. Uh, there's different things that, that people can do in Israel and, the, and that they do on Shavuot. It began as a celebration of harvest. And I wanted to read this to you. This is written by Rabbi Shrega Simmons. And it says the following. He writes, Judaism is unique in that every single Jew is commanded to know the Torah. The Torah. You know, that's the first five books of what we call the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Scriptures. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's Torah. Although it speaks also of the whole law that God gave His people. And so, he says all Jews are commanded. The first sentence, I didn't know this, the first sentence that a child is taught is Torah Tziva Lanu Moshi Morasha Kehilat Yaakov which means Torah was commanded to us through Moses and is the inheritance of every Jew. That's the first sentence you learn if you're a Jewish child in Israel today. He says Torah was meant for everybody. It's not the exclusive domain of some priestly class. Rather, it is a living, breathing document, the lifeblood of our Jewish nation. We are required at all times to involve ourselves personally in its study and practice. As Maimonides writes, Every Jew is obligated to study Torah, whether he's poor or rich, healthy or ill, young or old, even if he is a pauper who derives his livelihood from charity, or if he has family obligations to his wife and children, he must still establish fixed times for Torah study, both day and night, as it says in Joshua 1.8, you shall think about it day and night. The great sages of Israel included woodchoppers, water drawers, and blind men. Despite these difficulties, they were occupied with Torah study day and night and were amongst those who transmitted Torah in the unbroken chain dating back to Moses. Indeed, even Paul says he credits the Jewish people with the book, with maintaining and bringing the scriptures to us on down through the years. But this rabbi also writes, it's interesting to note, that the Vatican, by contrast, had an index of prohibited books until not too many years ago. And the number one book on that index was the Bible. The five books of Moses. Why would the Vatican have that in their list of prohibited books? Because they believed it was dangerous to the faith and hence they prohibited its study. Interesting. What you hold in your hands, if you've got a Bible in your hands, is a dangerous book. It's dangerous because it will change your life. If you commit yourself to the study and reading and, and, and memorization of this book, if you will focus time and attention on it, it will change you. Oh, not, not the book per se, but the fact that it's living and active because it's God breathed His Holy Spirit speaking through these words on the page into our hearts. It is a dangerous book. This book will cause you to go head to head with the world as we know it. This book is going to elevate and, and reveal to you sin in your own life, which none of us want to see. 
This book is going to bring you to the place of God's grace, which is at the same time absolutely wonderful, but also very dangerous because it will ruin you for yourself. There's nothing better than being ruined for Jesus. It's a dangerous book that we open and we study. But it's truth, gang. I was talking with Michael Hunting after the first hour, and he was just sharing. He teaches social studies down in Oak Harbor and was just sharing some of the things, and we'll get into this, but some of the things that it says about Christianity historically and says about Islam historically and, and the way it paints this picture that is just not true. It's not true. And we follow along hook, line, and sinker, but we forget that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Which very clearly teaches us that if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to have a hard time seeing what God is doing. There is a veil that is over the eyes of anybody who doesn't believe. That veil is lifted only in Jesus. Only then can you really see what's going on and really understand the truth. 1 Kings 18, verse 17. Let's begin there this morning. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. You recall Jezebel is that wicked, loathsome wife of Ahab. Ahab, the most wicked king in the history of Israel. And so Ahab, verse 20, sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Father, before we go any further, I ask your blessing on this study. And I ask, Lord, that you would remove the veil. If there is anyone here this morning who does not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and you as true God, then, Father, I pray the veil will be lifted, that truth might be seen. I pray you'll open our eyes to understanding of these things. That we might see you and know you and worship you in spirit and in truth. Holy Spirit, be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's been any one constant in the Middle East for the past 60 years of Israel's existence as a nation, the constant has been instability. It's constantly unstable. It's a tinderbox that could easily flare up or ignite at any moment. And we know this, we watch the news. And up until the last decade of American life, it mostly was something that happened over there. It was something that our country determined to support in terms of Israel as a nation. We came to their support. We have always been behind them. We have been called Israel's best friend in the world, America has. Though we're on kind of shaky ground with that these days. But up until, literally until 9-11, we in the Western world didn't really consider what was going on over there to be applicable to what's going on here. My, how times have changed. I was just thinking how easily the word jihad slips off our lips today as if it's just common cultural word. And it was a word that wasn't even used among us a decade ago. So many other words that we understand. Names that are so strange to us. Akhma genocide. Names like that. <laughs> Say it if you're with me. Names like Mahmoud. We don't, we don't, when we say our H's. You know, it's, it's a very different world than it was, at least when I was growing up. But I start with this to point out that the world in which we live might as well be a gathering at Mount Carmel. Because what we're dealing with today 
is exactly what Elijah was dealing with in his day. Just as the Bible indicated would happen, we are caught up in an epic and historical struggle. Joel Rosenberg, and you can get this, he has an email that goes out called Flash Traffic, where he updates you on what's happening in the Middle East and Middle Eastern things, and specifically related to Israel. And on June 6, 2008, he writes, Using some of his most apocalyptic rhetoric yet, Iranian leader Mahmoud Ahmadinejad is vowing that the United States and Israel will soon be annihilated. Now let that sink in. There is a world leader of a nation on planet Earth right now who is saying your country, America, is about to be annihilated. No one took Hitler seriously when he said that. Says it's about to be annihilated even as he refuses to abandon Iran's nuclear program. Marking the 19th anniversary of the death of Ayatollah Khomeini, Ahmadinejad said, Today the time for the fall of the satanic power of the United States has come, and the countdown to the, the annihilation of the emperor of power and wealth has started. He also insisted that I must announce that the Zionist regime, Israel, will soon be erased from the geographical scene. Israeli Deputy Prime Minister Shaul Mofaz, in the most explicit threat yet against Iran from a member of Prime Minister Omer's government, said, An Israeli attack on Iranian nuclear sites looks unavoidable given the apparent failure of Western sanctions to deny Tehran technology with bomb-making potential. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, who himself is very embattled politically, he's warning that Israel may soon be forced to launch a major military operation back down into Gaza to stop the ongoing rocket attacks. I've shared this before. 4,000 rockets have flown out of Gaza into Israel over the last year. 14 yesterday. And in addition to that... He says, we're going to have to go in. These comments came a day after Amnon Rosenberg, just to put a more personal face on it, Amnon Rosenberg, a 51-year-old father of three kids, was killed by a Gaza shell that hit the Nurlat paint factory at Kibbutz near Oz. The guy went to work and never came home. In a second article from Arut Sheba, an Israeli news source, June 4, 2008, anti-Christian cleansing campaign picks up the pace in Gaza. Attacks on Christian targets and those identified with Western culture have grown more frequent in Gaza in the past two years, and especially since the Hamas takeover in 2007, experts say. The targets have included churches, Christian and United Nations schools, the American International School, libraries, and even Internet cafes. An Israeli intelligence report determined that there has been an increase in the number of attacks specifically on Christian figures and institutions, as well as those associated with Western values. This is not just an Arab against Israeli problem. He says the attacks are, the attacks are being perpetuated by elements identified in the global jihad and radical Islam network. In the past two years, groups associated with Al-Qaeda took the responsibility for attacks on Christians and Christian institutions with the expressly stated goal of driving Christians out of Gaza. The Christian community in Gaza currently numbers around 3,000. The article goes on to describe monthly anti-Christian attacks that have gone on for the past two years in Gaza that we don't even hear about going on. But those attacks include thefts, arsons, bombings, kidnappings, and of course, murder. And each time the Hamas police force, which seems to me to be an oxymoron, comes out and says, we're going to investigate and we'll, we'll bring someone to justice here, and nothing ever happens. Amos chapter 1 verse 6 tells us the following. Maybe two verses just to kind of chew on. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. 
because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. Obadiah chapter 1 verse 10 says, Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. You Bible students may recall the word violence in Hebrew is Hamas, which is an interesting, interesting thing. Now I'm sharing all this not to freak anybody out or to try and be, you know, mini Fox News or anything up here. It's to simply say this. We have got to understand that we are not in a political war. It's not an ethnic war. It's not a territorial war. It's not even an ideological struggle between democracy and Islamofascism. We are in a spiritual war. And as I shared first hour, I believe we're beginning to see more and more of the battle that's been going on in the spirit realm for 2,000 years. We're beginning to see it bust loose in physical terms. We are actually watching warfare happen. Jesus said it was going to be this way. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you don't lose heart. These things are going to happen. These are signs of the days in which you live. Be alert. Be aware. Know what's going on. We are in a spiritual war. And it's no different in nature than the epic showdown between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal some 2,900 years ago. The primary issue is exactly the same, and that is, I believe, this. Whose God is God? Whose God is God? Who is the real will the real God please stand up? Who is Lord here? Is it Elijah Elijah said it was Yahweh. Is it Yahweh with Elijah? It was Yahweh versus Baal. And that's exactly what we're going to get into in this study. Will the real God show himself? Elijah would say, it's it's my God, the Lord, Yahweh. And the prophets of Baal, of course, would say, no, Baal is God. Today, it's Yahweh versus another God named Allah. Isaiah 43, verse 10. The Lord says, before me, listen to this, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I'm it. I'm all you got, the Lord says. I, even I, am the Lord. There is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, so you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Even from eternity I am He, and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? From the very beginning, God was declaring His own sole authority as God, as Creator, as the one unique God. None before him, and certainly none after him. And so the confrontation before us this morning in 1 Kings 18 is the same one happening before our eyes in the world today. Watch some things will stand out, I believe, to you. Watch closely as we read through this. Verse 21. So Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Elijah cries out, How long are you going to hesitate? How long are you going to vacillate? This word hesitate in the Hebrew is literally to leap. How long are you going to leapfrog back and forth between two opinions? Oh, I'll worship God this day. I'm going to worship Baal this day. I'm going to be for the Lord this day. I'm going to be for myself this day. The Lord declares both then and now, Choose your side. Choose up sides. Now, I I, I speak this with as much sincerity, but also seriousness as I can muster. The time has come in the Christian world for us to stop being wimps and to choose who we follow and believe and stick there. 
And I go back and forth and go, well, you know, maybe that's, that's kind of cool, you know, if he says it. Robert Schuller, after 9-11 in 2002, proclaimed the Muslims as friends of his and even said, if my own children end up in Islam, that's okay as long as they worship God. Choose your side. When we were kids, that's what we all called out. We go running out of the classroom, out onto the playground. Some of you may recall this. You had 15 minutes of playground time. You had to get out there and get there quick. We had it straight for the field. Somebody got the big orange ball, and we got out there, and it was kickball time. And I was vying for kickball champion of the world. Just want you to know there were a few kids who could kick that ball further than me. Right here. So we choose up sides. Not exactly true. But we choose sides. You know, we line up. Kids over here, kids over here. But there was one irritating little kid every single time, and he was in your school too. He switched sides depending on who was winning. Remember him? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to play on this team now. You know, I think I need my help. You know, Whoever's winning, that's the side he wants to be on. And it reminds me, honestly, it reminds me of agnostics today. I have more respect for an atheist than I do for an agnostic because at least an atheist has chosen his side. At least an atheist is saying, no, I don't believe in God at all. I'm over here. This is where I stand. That's what, what the Lord says. Choose your side. Be absolutely clear. The agnostic says, well, don't really think there is a God, but I can't say that he's not, so I'm just going to ride the fence right up the middle, and all that does is create mealy mouth, mediocre, milk toast spirituality. I'll kind of go where the winning team is. Joshua said in Joshua 24:15, and listen carefully, this caught my eyes even this morning. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. You know what he's saying? You got a pantheon of gods out there, pick one. I mean, if you don't want to serve the Lord, at least pick a guy. At least serve something. Whether the gods your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Ammonites, in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Revelation 22.11, one of my favorite verses, but an, an odd one. John writes, let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. In other words, choose your side. Stop leapfrogging back and forth between the two. This is where Elijah begins on, this, on the mountain called Carmel, that beautiful mountain on the Mediterranean coast in Israel. We go there the first day. We land, get off the plane, hop on the bus. Actually, we go to the hotel and sleep at night. But the very first day we're out touring, we go to Mount Carmel, where you can see where this epic struggle happened. And so Elijah said, choose up sides, verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Just a quick side note, this is a, a tiny little chink in Elijah's armor. I'm the only one left. And gang, that kind of false statement is going to cause Elijah problems in the next chapter when he runs away because he's scared to death for his life. This powerful prophet is frightened because he thinks he's the only one which is exactly what we do isn't it I'm the only one who's dealing with cancer like this I'm the only one who who has had a fallout in my marriage I'm the only one whose friends talk behind my back I'm the only one whose life is so messy you people don't understand gang we've been around here western civilization 6,000 years there have been plenty before you who have had the exact same problems you have the issue is not the problems the issue is how we handle them and do we trust the Lord for them? 
I was telling Sharon, and I'm going to share this, she, wasn't, she was here first hour, but my mother-in-law, talking to her yesterday, she went through breast cancer, and you know what's interesting? I think back to that time, those, those, that year or so, when she was dealing with it, and, and the chemo, and all that she went through, and I cannot remember a single negative word out of her mouth. I cannot remember even it being that big a deal. It was cancer. But the attitude that she had was just, whatever you want, Lord. And so our attitudes, like Elijah's, you know, sometimes we, we pigeonhole ourselves and say, we're the only one. We're not the only one. But I will tell you this, there is only one God, and He can help you through it. And so going on, he says, I alone am, am left of the prophets of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood and put no fire under it. I'll prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood and I will not put a fire under it. And then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. I like that. You call on the name of your God, your El in Hebrew. I'm going to call on the name of Yahweh. Very specifically. And anytime you see Lord in the Old Testament scriptures, Lord is the name of God, Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H in the, in the Hebrew. I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. And then he says, And the God who answers by fire, He is God. And all the people said, That's a good idea. <laughs> so Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. And they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they had made. That's the same word, by the way, as hesitate back in verse 21. They leaped. The people were hesitating, leaping back and forth between opinion. Now these prophets of Baal are leaping back and forth around their altar, trying to get Baal's attention. You know, I, I wonder what these guys were thinking when Elijah said, The God who answers by fire, he is God. And they say, This is a good idea. You know? What were they thinking? Was it that they really believed that Baal was going to answer them by fire? Donna asked me an interesting question earlier. She said, Do you think Satan would have had the power to answer the false prophets of Baal by fire? And I looked at her and I said, You know what the answer is to that? I have no idea. <laughs> and I thought about it since first service, and I'll give you an answer right now. Still have no idea. <laughs> he is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of this world, the Bible tells us. So there, there's something there, and yet we don't see any example in Scripture of Satan ever using nature in a supernatural way the way the Lord does. But these prophets of Baal, as they're standing around, they, they've got to at least figure, worst case scenario, no fire from heaven falls on our offering or Elijah's, and we all just kind of stand there going, I guess the gods are busy today. And we get off the hook. What they failed to recognize was the history of the God of Israel, something Elijah would have known very well. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, repeated in Hebrews 12:29, is the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 3 Moses said Know therefore today that it's the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them He will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. Elijah knew his Bible. He knew his Bible. He knew the history of the Lord with Israel as well. It was more than just God being called a consuming fire. We have specific examples of God being a consuming fire. Exodus 24, 17. 
says, To the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord, this is on the top of Mount Sinai, was like a consuming fire. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 2, that interesting story of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the high priest, on the day that they were being consecrated for the priesthood, they decide, they're so caught up in the moment, they're drunk, and so they decide, hey, let's, let's make some fire of our own. They take their fire pans and they offer what the Bible calls strange fire, and Leviticus 10.2 says, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So God knows how to handle fire, apparently. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. The people are complaining again as they move through the wilderness on their trek to the promised land. And it says, The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, His anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So the name of that place was called Tibera, which means burning. You don't want to make the Lord burning mad. I almost get a picture there of God just going, I have just had it, and you, you know, it just starts to heat up outside the camp. Whoa. He's a consuming fire. Numbers 16, verse 35. In Korah's rebellion. You guys may remember that story. The Korah and some others rebelled against Moses, wanted to go back to Egypt, and we're told in that verse that fire came forth from the Lord and consumed 250 men who were offering incense against Moses. It's good to know your Bible. It's good to know what the, God, what the Lord has done so that you can have confidence in what the Lord will do than Elijah did. He knew what the Lord had done. He knew what the Lord could do. Now, I love where this goes. Elijah starts to talk trash. Verse 27. <laughs> it came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is God. Either he is occupied or gone aside, literally in the restroom. <laughs> or on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Verse 28, So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. You know what happened here? Their God bailed. I mean, He did. He didn't show up. And that's the last time I'll use that joke. My apologies. Verse 29 says, When midday was passed, they raved until the time of the offering. Which means there were raves all the way back then in the history of Israel. <laughs> they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. By the way, when you look at their antics here in verse 28, how they cut themselves and how the blood gushed out on them and what they were doing and the leaping back and forth, it is eerily similar to what we have seen in protests among Muslims in the Middle East. And as a matter of fact, there are celebrations in Islam that require the cutting of the flesh and the pouring out of your own blood. That's fascinating to me. And I point this out to you so let me just say once again, because I know there are always emails that follow when I say things like this, I am not anti-Muslim. I believe every Muslim on the face of the earth needs to meet and get to know Jesus Christ so they can be saved. I am, however, anti-Islam because any religion that would take a person away from the saving grace of Jesus, I am against. Any religion that basically will dedicate a person to hell, I am against. Oh, Rick, you're, you're being harsh. No, I'm not. I'm saying right here with this verse, pay attention to the behavior of the believers of any given God because it's, a, it's an indicator of the nature and character of their God. I'll take your bathroom. Huh? I'll take your bathroom. Okay, thank you. Can I give you a call this afternoon if I need to? Okay, all right. <laughs> 
Gang, when we, when we consider the nature and character of our God, how does our behavior reflect that? And we can look at any given religion across history. Look at the prophets of Baal. What does this tell you about Baal? That their attitude was he was bloodthirsty. Look at the people of the religion of Islam. Look in the Middle East at those who are carrying it out to its fullest, who are living by the Koran to its exact, and you tell me, what does that say about their belief in their own God? And then apply that to us. What does our behavior and our, and our actions say about our God? Do people look at our behavior and say, He's a God of love. Do people look at us and say, Wow, Jesus must be forgiving. Or do they say, Judgmental. Do they say he must be a god of anger if that guy follows him, if, if if she follows him? Are we functioning in the nature of our God, or do we misrepresent him in the flesh? It's a tough question. Going on, verse thirty. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near me. So all the people came near him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which has been torn down. One comment on this. It's a sure sign that a people are turning away from their God when they start removing reminders of him from the public square or schools or courthouses. The people of Israel had so turned away from God by this time that the altar was literally torn down and not even in use any longer. Verse 31. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed, that's about thirty-two quarts. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. He said, fill four pitchers with water. Pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And i got to know right now the prophets of Baal are shuffling their feet and getting a little uncomfortable because this guy is showing an incredible amount of confidence in his God to be doing this. Verse 35, the water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. At the time of the offering, verse 36, of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Notice the contrast in prayer. The prophets of Baal have been jumping around their idol all day long, cutting themselves, crying out, calling out, just going at it. Oh, come on, Baal, show your stuff! All day, nonstop, in a frenzy. Elijah steps up, and the prayer he prays, not only is it simple, but it's short. It takes about 20 seconds to pray in the Hebrew. And that simple prayer yielded an astounding response. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones, the stones burned, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Verse 40, Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Game over. The Lord is God. It's a great story. It's just one of those kicking stories that you're reading. You go, yeah. 
You know, alone in my office, reading this, going, "Do it, Father, do it, do it again. Burn all the prophets of Baal." No, okay, Elijah will take care of that. You know, I just, I just get so into God proving Himself. I'm, I'm sharing the story with Hayden last week, and uh, Hayden's question when we finished, you know, I said, "And God, you know, looked up all the dust and everything was just awesome." And Hayden goes, "Well, so what happened? Did the prophets of Baal become Christians?" <laughs> No. No, actually, Elijah took the sword and slew every one of them. Hayden thought about this for a moment. It's kind of harsh, Dad. (laughs) You know, the truth is, it wasn't Elijah's decision to slay these false prophets at all. It was God's command. Deuteronomy 13, verses 12 through 15. God prescribed this punishment to anyone who would lead his people away from him to chase after a false idol. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20, says, The prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Why? Because God would nip it in the bud at the prophet before it infects the people. The New Testament equivalent is, Let not many of you be teachers, for you're going to be judged by a higher standard. I will just briefly share that we're going through this in our, with our shepherds right now, just talking about what is the standard that, that we're called to. And it's not easy to talk about. Because we all stop and, and as go, going back over Paul's qualifications of what it means to be a shepherd and, and the type of person you look at, and, and we're all looking at ourselves going, <laughs> you know, what, what's fun is we can check off where we're doing okay. Okay, father, husband of one wife, I'm good there. You know, most of us answered great. And then, <laughs> but going down and, and starting to feel like, well, we, we are so ill-equipped and, and God has these standards. You know what, for his prophets, God's standard was you prophesy in my name the word that I give you otherwise you will die why? because if you draw my people away then they will die if you tell them lies if you don't speak the truth to them they're not going to know the way and so he would stop it with the prophets rather than seeing an entire people condemned to an eternal death gang this is the showdown we're facing today this is it The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. The God of Christianity versus the false God, Allah. 610 years after Christ, a 40-year-old one-time merchant named Muhammad went into the Kaaba, a temple of sorts there in Mecca, still there today, a temple of idols, which is considered today to be the most holy place in all of Islam. But in the 6th and 7th centuries, it bore a dedication to a Nabataean deity, and it contained 360 idols of all the various warring tribes of of, of the Arabic people. It was not originally a temple to one God. It was originally a pantheon to hundreds. There were enough gods for every day of the year, for every tribe under the sun. And indeed, one of those gods was a god of the moon, the god of Muhammad's tribe, a god whose name was Allah. Which is why today, the crescent moon is the symbol of Islam. Because originally, Allah was simply one of the many pagan gods in the Kaaba there in Mecca. Muhammad chose his tribal god to be the unifying force of the Arabian Peninsula. By the time of his death, by illness by the way, he got sick and died in 632 AD. The vast majority of the Arabian Peninsula had converted solely to Islam, but not without cost. It had been a bloody, bloody battle for the conquering of that area. 
Allah indeed became Muhammad's unifying force because under the banner of the crescent moon, Muhammad forced submission to Allah by the sword. Islam, some of you know, means submission, but it doesn't mean spiritual submission. It means forced submission. And that's what Muhammad did. It was submit or die, bend the knee or get beheaded. And Muhammad himself personally killed thousands of Arabs who would not submit. Michael Hunting was talking about the textbook that they used for social studies there in Oak Harbor, in the Oak Harbor School. And in this textbook, it paints Muhammad as a peace-loving man. Gang, Muhammad was insane. He had fits of rage and anger. Muhammad thought for a long time he was being uh, tempted or, or he was being overcome or possessed by Satan. Until his wife said, no, it's not Satan, it's God. Muhammad wanted to commit suicide multiple times. And when Muhammad did start his reign of terror in the Arabian Peninsula, heads rolled. There's one story of Muhammad coming into a town of Jews and he said, let us pass through here and we'll let you live. The Jews let him pass through there. They stopped and they beheaded every single one of them. The blood flowed in the Arabian Peninsula under the domination of this man named Muhammad. What does this say about his God? But here we are, 1400 years later, public opinion and school textbooks maintain that Allah and God, Allah and Yahweh are just different names for the one and same God. It's what I was taught when I was a kid in elementary school, that you've got Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, and they all share the same God, they just have different approaches to Him. Gang, it is absolutely a lie. Allah is not the name of the God that you are serving here this morning. It's like calling Baal God. Elijah didn't stand up on Mount Carmel and say, Hey, you know what? You call him Baal, I call him Yahweh. That's cool. You know, we'll just call him by different names, but let's at least just, you know, focus on the Hebrew Scriptures. You want to call him all of that? That's just fine. No. No, there was a showdown to prove who the one true God is, and that God's name is Yahweh, not Allah. You know, Muslims don't even believe that Allah and Yahweh are the same God. Muslims do not believe that their God is shared by Christians. Among other blasphemous statements printed in Arabic along the top of the Dome of the Rock Mosque in Jerusalem is the statement, God is not begotten, nor does He beget. So their God, Allah, not only never had a son, but isn't a begotten son. And that under, undermines the entire premise of Christianity. Our entire belief as to where we came from, Christianity is a myth, and Jesus is a liar. And yet, Helen Louise Herndon, in Hank Hanegraaff's Christian Research Journal 2002, wrote the following. This blew my mind. Allah does not belong to Islam. Allah is the God Arab-speaking Christians worship. The Arabic Bible is replete with the word Allah from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus Christ is even called the Son of Allah in the Arabic Scriptures. And if that's true, which I suppose it probably is, that's disgusting to me. Allah is simply, she says, Allah is simply the word or term for God in another language. Equivalent to the English word God or the French word Dieu or Spanish Dios. We can join our Arab brothers and sisters in Christ who often say, Allah, be praised. What? Are you kidding me? In the Christian Research Journal, Christianity Today, lauds Islam as a, as a brother religion. Come on. What, what is going on here? 
even the Quran declares that there's a different name for God. I mean, there's, there's, there's the word God, Il-Ah, and then there's the name God, Allah, which is the name that they subscribe to their God. Allah is no more Yahweh than Baal was. Well, Rick, how can you say that? I mean, how do you really know? What, what, if, he, what if it is just a different approach? Okay, let's look at the distinctions. Think about this with me just for a moment. Some things to jot down. Islam teaches that Allah is unknowable. He's unknowable. He cannot be known by men. Now, I'm just going to tell you some things that an Islamic cleric, if he were allowed to speak here on a Sunday morning, which he wouldn't be, what he would say. Okay? Islam teaches that Allah is unknowable. What about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? John 1.14 tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, only begotten God, who Islam says God does not beget, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. We've talked about that word before, explained, is exegeomai, where we get our word exegesis, which is a word that means to study in full. Jesus explains God in full. Is God unknowable? Here's another verse for you. John 14, verse 7. Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him, and you have seen him. And Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long, Philip? And yet you have not come to know me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Is God unknowable? See, that is the exact opposite of the teachings of Christianity where we believe God is not only knowable but has revealed Himself in Jesus so that we could have a relationship with Him, knowing Him as He is. 1 Timothy 3.16 Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That is, He was seen, He was beheld, He was known in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 tells us God, after He spoke long ago to the prophets, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world. Now I don't know about you, but in my Bible, if I go back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, what I read here is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Suddenly it's revealed to us that God created the heavens and the earth through His Son. Well, how is that possible? Because Jesus is God. He is God. And we've talked about that before. I hope you understand that by now. And if not, please see me afterwards. Is God unknowable? It says in Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. God has made Himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. Second thing that Islam teaches, there is nothing Allah cannot do. Allah can do anything. I know, you might think, well, my God can do anything. Well, the Bible teaches us there are some things our God can't do. Our God can't lie. Titus chapter 1 verse 1 Paul writing to Titus says I'm a bondservant of God and the apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ago he can't lie he cannot do it God will not use lies to propagate his agenda Christians please hear me on that 
Deceits, falsehood, and lies are not in our arsenal as followers of the Lord God. Truth is. Not lies. Even if we think it could further our agenda as a church or my agenda as an individual Christian, we are not called upon to use lies because our Father will not use lies. He can't lie. Allah can lie. Muhammad had an integrity problem in 629 A.D., the tribe, the Kiriash tribe, Muhammad's tribe, coming out of Mecca, came against him in a massive battle. Muhammad fought hard there in Medina. It was one of the most critical battles, and I believe it was the battle of either Bakir or Badir, I'm not sure. But in that battle, had Muhammad been killed, Islam probably would not even exist today. But he didn't prevail. It was a standoff. And at the end of that battle, they got together and they made a treaty together a 10 year peace treaty that Muhammad made with his own tribe out of Mecca the Kiraish tribe one year later Muhammad violated that treaty when his army was strong enough he went out and he decimated the, the uh, tribe the Kiraish tribe in Mecca and Muslims will quote this as the Kiraish model it means negotiate peace with your enemy until you're strong enough to annihilate him and that is A-OK with Allah the God who apparently Apparently, there's nothing he cannot do, including lie. You may recall that famous day in 1993 of the Oslo Accords where Ishtar Rabin from Israel was standing there on the White House lawn along with Yasser, that's my baby, Arafat. And behind them, standing, President Clinton just beaming at this massive success that these two men were together, signing this treaty. Yasser Arafat goes home, and the Arabic people say, What are you doing? And he says, Kiraish. It's Kiraish, man. We're just signing the treaty now so we can get stronger and annihilate them later. Because Allah can lie if it furthers His agenda. Our God cannot lie and will not use lies to further His agenda. Second thing our God can't do, our God can't break faith with Himself. Once God has said He will do a thing, guess what? He does the thing. He can't not do what He promises He will do. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we're faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope, what is that? That I'm saved. That Jesus Christ's blood does cover me. I have a home in heaven, and I can trust that because God is faithful and can't be unfaithful. Woohoo! It doesn't depend on me. God is going to save me because He said He would. By contrast, a man by the name of Abu Bakr, the first caliph to follow Muhammad, had Muhammad's personal promise of paradise. You can't get much better than that in Islam. To have Muhammad say, you are saved, you will be in paradise, no question about it, don't worry about it. And yet Abu Bakr still feared he could have one foot inside paradise and Allah could still shut him out. Which gives me a great deal of compassion for Muslims around the world. Because it's a life that's lived in fear. I don't know if I'm saved or not. I could be even a martyr. And if I catch Allah on a bad day, I'm out of here. There is no guarantee. Jesus said in John 10:27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Our God cannot break faith with himself. And, and lastly, and there are other things we could look at, but our God also can't remember my sins. That's something he can't do. Why? Because he said he would forget them. And because he can't break faith with himself, he can't remember my sin. And I just love that. I, I get this picture in my mind from time to time when I'm coming back to the Father and confessing my sin and saying, Lord, I'm, I'm just so sorry I did that. And he says, did what? What are we talking about here? Before the sin's out of my mouth, it's gone. God does not remember it. Jeremiah 31:34 and Hebrews 10:17. Both declare their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Allah, on the other hand, is totally into works righteousness. It's a balance of the scales. You show up on your judgment day and look at what you've done and either you're good enough and the scale tips in this direction or you're bad enough and the scale tips in the other direction. But even if you seem good enough, even then, Allah might say, Nah, no, go to hell. My God won't do that. He can't lie. He cannot break faith with himself. He cannot remember my sins. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved. Through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God. I don't see Allah giving gifts like that. Unless people are willing to perform bloodthirsty acts for him in a martyrdom of blowing up children and, and women and Bible students on a bus. Well, then maybe you garner some favor with Allah. Now, I know some might say, Rick, this is just semantics, and I I reply, exactly. Exactly. The Lord is so precise in what He says, you are not going to catch Him tangled up in His own conflicting statements. What God says He means. I love this about the Word. That from Genesis to Revelation, it is consistent. It's absolutely consistent. However, in Islam, it teaches Allah can change his mind and his revelations if he so desires. Islam actually teaches that the latter writings of the Quran supersede the earlier writings wherever there's a contradiction, because there are contradictions. The first part of the, of the Quran, talking about Muhammad's earlier life, was when he was trying to appeal to Christians and Jews to come on board with him. When they said no, you get to the latter part of the Quran, in which it said, kill the infidel, especially Christians and Jews. Kill them, wipe them out. Our God and Savior, gang, though Allah can change his mind and change his revelations, Hebrews 13.8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he said then is what he means now and it's what he will do later. He is 100% consistent. He does not change his mind. He does not change his revelations. Which is why if you did the study in the book of Revelation with us a while ago, you know the book of Revelation is 100% consistent with the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, it's phenomenal. You want to do a full Bible study? Study the book of Revelation. Because it takes you through the whole entire word. God is so consistent, cover to cover. Islam's God, number four. I've given you three of them. Islam teaches that God is unknowable, teaches that God, there's nothing God can't do. It teaches Allah can change his mind in his revelations. Number four, Islam's God, Allah, requires Muslims to kill for him. There are over 100 verses in the Quran calling on Muslims to kill the infidels whenever you come across them. And this is not a specific people, like when the children of Israel came back into the promised land. This isn't a specific, specific people who have set themselves against God. This is anyone who does not believe in the teachings of Islam. Anyone, kill them. Take them out. 
especially Christians and Jews. In fact, Muhammad's dying words were, May Allah curse the Christians and Jews. Do we share the same God? Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher, said in his writing, Pensees, that Muhammad established a religion by putting his enemies to death. Jesus Christ, by commanding his followers to lay down their lives. There's a dramatic contrast. And then Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for all of us. Finally, number five, Islam's God, Allah, has no justifiable basis for salvation. There is nothing that you can point to and say, this is how you get saved as a Muslim. This is how he justifies saving you. You get into paradise on nothing more than Allah's whimsy. He's arbitrary, he's bloodthirsty, he's inconsistent, he's unknowable, and you're only assured paradise if you're a martyr or if you catch him on a good day. And even then he can change his mind. Talk about a God who bails on his people. And then I go through all this, and you know what? It doesn't make me angry at a Muslim. It breaks my heart for them. Because that's the God they have to worship. That's the God five times a day they are on their faces worshiping. A false God. That is not the God of Christianity that we have come to know and love as Jesus Christ. Our God has a justifiable basis for salvation. You see, to be saved, we have to be perfect like God is perfect. How in the world is that possible? We know it's not. And so God justified us freely. Well, let me let Paul tell you this. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of His righteousness at this present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this is not about stirring up anger or fear toward Muslims. It's about recognizing the battle that we are in which is the same battle of Elijah. We have the same mission and message that he had. It remains the same today. His name was his mission, as I said last week. Eliyah. Yahweh is God. That's what his name meant. His mission was to proclaim one true God. And Yahweh is Him. And so Elijah stood up on Mount Carmel and he asked the people this question. A question that might well be asked of us today. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, or Allah, or Buddha, or any other, then follow Him. At first, notice this, the people said nothing. At first, before the miracle of the fire coming down from heaven, they didn't speak a word. Elijah gives them an opportunity to have faith. He says, how long are you going to hesitate? And they look down at their shoes and they kick the rocks and they don't really say anything. I'm not going to make a decision right now. But notice the change in their demeanor when it's all said and done. Verse 39, they cry out, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! You know what this story is, gang? It is a miniature picture of the history of the world. 
Where God even today speaks to us and says, like Elijah did on Mount Carmel, how long are you going to hesitate between two opinions? Make your choice. Choose your side. Because ultimately, the glory of God, the miracle, the fire will be seen. And when it's seen, guess what? The entire world is going to fall down on their knees. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now gang, we know that's coming. And so we have a choice. We can answer Elijah today. We can answer the Lord right now and say, I choose you, Yahweh, Jesus Christ. I choose the one true God. Today, I worship you today by choice. Or, we will worship Him tomorrow when tomorrow comes. Because we are scared out of our wits. Like the children of Israel, I believe, were. And the question is, which will it be? Choose Jesus, choose life and grace and peace and all the love you can imagine and more. Or you can choose a life lived for yourself or for all or someone else. And it doesn't even compare. Let's bow and pray together. Father, it is my prayer that you will move our hearts in such a way that we will not wait until the showdown is over. That we will choose up sides and in so choosing begin to follow you, Lord. No more vacillating. No more whining and thinking we're all alone in this. No more playing the fence. But being decisive. And choosing you, Jesus, because you chose us long before we even existed on this earth. You chose to go to the cross, Lord Jesus, and to pour your blood out as a show of your great love and affection for us, even before we had a choice. So that when our time would come to make a choice, we could look back and know you loved us first. We praise you and thank you so much for that love. I pray, Father, that you will bear up this fellowship to know the truth of the one true God. That we would not be a people deceived as so many are today. And that, Father, as we walk in the truth, we would share the truth with all those around us. And as we pray this morning, if you choose today to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, I invite you to pray in your heart to the Lord after me. And just say, Lord, I believe that you are God. Jesus Christ, I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. I believe that you died for me. I confess this morning your resurrection. And I ask that you will come and be the Lord over my life. I choose you today. In Jesus' name. Amen.